0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws.
1: This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height.
0: And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff.
1: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode
0: include... Playing Historical Figures.
1: Mexican Cartels Meet Nigerian Sorcery.
0: Collaboration Secrets.
1: And Ogatai Khan. Hang gliders, marshmallows,
0: spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas games at this point in the show.
1: Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school.
0: Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like
1: trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider.
0: Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one.
1: The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose.
0: Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil
1: genius in training who's chosen wins the round.
0: That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider.
1: Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free.
0: That's 52 cards, perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico.
1: And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping, too.
0: Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.?
1: Not at all! That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too.
0: Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you.
1: In Mad Scientist University, everyone
0: gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen.
1: And then the TA picks a winner.
0: And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free.
1: Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts?
0: If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com
1: slash Ken and Robin dash MSU.
0: That's atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin dash M like Mike, S like sugar, U like union.
1: Or follow the link in the show notes.
0: Yeah, that's the way to do it.
1: It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Ian Dornan asks Ken and Robin, what advice would you offer players who are taking on the role of established historical and cultural figures who might be nervous about portraying the person wrong? Uh, Robin, I think that this is immediately Dreamhounds relevant, and I think sort of Ken's entire life relevant, but I'm going to let you (laughs) step up and take a swing at it. relevant to your current
0: campaign. uh, So, the... Simple answer, and I think what we're going to be doing is breaking down the actual practical steps that help you get there, is just simply don't sweat it. Uh, tell <laughs> tell your players up front yes, don't do that. Uh, that this is an adaptation of historical events, not a recreation of historical events. And uh, it is like you know an HBO show that if it has historical figures in it, like Boardwalk Empire did, is going to take liberties with those characters, and it'll mess around with the chronology, and they'll uh, t- have a particular take on each character, and what's more interesting or important is what fits in the story rather than what is absolutely historically accurate at all times. Because, uh, unlike an HBO miniseries or any other traditional fictional presentation, the only people who could possibly nitpick you about this are yourselves. And why would you do that? So uh, it can be very difficult for people to give themselves license. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily always easy to tell people who have a mental block to just don't have that mental block. <laughs>
1: uh, but- it is, in fact, almost impossible to do it, as it turns out. Right. But it is the answer. Yes.
0: And it is <laughs> exactly what we're going to do and try and break down uh, different ways to approach this. And one of them is to just say, this is your take on the character so whatever you decide to do is right for this version of the story you're almost inevitably going to be doing a mythic version of events anyway because chances are almost uh, 99 percent that you're nerd troping history in some way so as for example uh, with dreamhounds you've got all sorts of ways that you can justify deviations from History as we know it, you can decide ahead of time that uh, it can perfectly easily deviate from history as we know it and that you can have the freedom to do things that uh, didn't happen or you can have characters killed earlier than they really were. And so the simple matters of interpreting the character are something that you can just uh, feel free of. You have artistic license in your own campaign, especially when playing your own character.
1: Yeah, I think that that's uh, that's one thing. Another thing that I do is I go even farther than the sort of Showtime version. I go all the way into, you know, sort of Opera buffa or Bollywood, right? If you've got vampires and you've got magic and you've got Great Cleave, uh, then you really don't need to worry about a historically accurate Harold Hardrada. This is, this is your, you know, time tunnel Harold Hardrada. This is, you know, I would say make, uh, the reason you're putting Harold Hardrada into your game is because Harold Hardrada, something about Harold Hardrada is fitting into your game first. And unless you are a Vikingologist or your player playing Harold Hardrada is a Vikingologist, you wanted him for the part you already knew fit in. So play toward that, play into that. Uh, just like if you've got, you know, Nureyev playing a character, he's going to dance a lot. You're just going to have a dancing Harold Hardrada if you've got your tactical dancer uh, taking the role. So, I would say, even more than just saying, oh, it's the Showtime version, we have to get the hat brim right, don't even bother with that. You know, Mad Men can't get the fonts correct in every uh, scene. You're certainly not going to be uh, doing it for fractions of what they are paid, uh, or possibly not fractions, dividing by zero, not being a fraction.
0: Yes, and, and it's uh, role-playing as a narrative experience, so you can just say, all the fonts are right.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, I'm looking is, at that is a lot faster. are
0: correct to the period. <laughs> um one uh lesson that i learned uh as a gm running dreamhounds is to never even make a joke of the fact that you know as gm more about the historical background than the Players do uh, because I, in one instance the uh, the player playing Man Ray introduced himself to uh, Robert Desnos who in this case is a was a non-player character no one had chosen to play him and uh, I jokingly said well as you know as my longtime friend for many years I'm thinking that that was was just a joke but actually the player had a really tough time dealing with that because it is sort of a joke at the player's expense that they don't right. have the uh, all the information at their fingertips so the correct way. To approach that is through narration and to do it in a series way. So you just say, oh, well, you know him, he's your longtime friend, and you don't ever, ever riff on the distance between their knowledge and perfect knowledge of who the characters might be. Yeah. And there's all sorts of other ways that you can as a GM can help your players uh, through this by sort of coaching them and giving them details. And uh, because really the only purpose of historical detail in something like this is to give a sense of reality to what otherwise might be the, the crazy, wacky goings-on. So you don't have to get everything right or have details for every possible situation, but just one or two telling little details where you might say, well, uh, Andre Breton passes you a note and it's written in green ink as... Uh, is habitual for him and the rest of you kind of make fun of him behind his back about that. And so that is sort of overstepping a little, the traditional control over player response that the GM usually has. But um, if you do that in kind of small ways, right, you don't want to foreclose big choices, but you can sort of help share what the character's um, attitudes are. So if you can, you know, if you're what are the players in your game currently playing historical figures, or are they all fictional characters amid uh, a background of historical figures?
1: They are right now all fictional characters, uh, sort of spliced into the background in some cases more or less finely than others. And of course, once they start, you know, casting proxy rituals and, you know, impersonating various famous characters, they run into those problems more, or those opportunities more and more. The person who really has to stay on their toes is me, and make sure that if I get something wrong, you know, I have James Garfield dying over a 40-day period instead of an 80-day period, I just play it as though it's a 40-day period, and then I come back into the game the next week, and I say, oh, it turns out that was an 80-day period, so that Masonic, uh, or the Trismos ritual to turn America into the land of the Bible by having a 40 days of suffering is actually doubly effective. Uh, and that's, and you just move on and the players sort of retcon it in their minds and think, oh yes, uh, East Asia has always been, you know, at war with Oceania and they keep going and that, uh, sort of just upgrades their experience. It's like patching a software hole, not like rewriting their memories per se. The, um, the thing that they sort of have to keep in mind a little bit is, uh, interacting with historical and cultural figures, but a lot of times they play off the way that I play them. So, you know, Doc Holliday is sitting across from you at a Pharaoh table. They know not to mess with Doc Holliday because first of all, he's Doc Holiday. They recognize his name. But second of all, I'm playing him in the way that I want them to feed back into Doc Holliday. If I were playing Doc Holiday as sort of a joke, um, or, a or a drunk or a lunger or any of the other possible ways you could play Doc Olive, they would then respond to him differently, but it would not be on them to have gotten him right. It's on them to feed into the drama that's being created.
0: Right. So have you had, uh, past games where people did play historical figures?
1: Yeah, I have, I've had, uh, that comes up in time travel games a good deal. I had a number of parallel universe games where everyone, or about half the players were historical figures, uh. My friend Chris played uh, one of the founding members of uh, the sort of French modern occult tradition, F.C. Barlet. And there is – and when you're playing with University of Chicago players, you're playing with people who are sort of selected for obsessive research. So it rapidly became a question of the players had to make sure they didn't make fun of me for knowing less about their characters than than they did. And we had to sort of do all of that, you know, backwards and in high heels. But it's the same – basic wind-up. Uh My friend Mike has played uh, Richard Francis Burton um uh, a couple of times. It's It's just one of those things where you find a character, and the reason that you, again, selected him is because you can sink into his skin a little bit. You have a sense of what kind of fun that character would be to play. You play to that fun, and then the more you read, the more that informs you about the fun you're already having and tells you more and different kinds of fun. So you 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 know you may say I want to play um, uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth because she's a desperate badass politician, and then you it turns out you learn that she's a dancer and she has a great dirty sense of humor, and that lets you add another dimension, sort of like when we learned Sulu also as a botanist or also as a fencer.
0: Right, and so that that points to another answer is that if y- you are a player who is concerned about getting it wrong, uh, doing the research will help uh, fix that because you will then be able to uh, spring details on your GM and you can then claim more authority over that character eventually than the uh, GM can. And uh, if your character is well-known enough that there's a basic biography out on on her, you can then uh, pick that up and learn what you need to learn and that will give you the confidence you need. Conversely, if you're a player who is not extremely concerned about getting it uh, right in quotation marks but just want to do what is right for the story and you're willing to just take a few sort of surface details and do kind of a a cartoony version of it or a simple version of that character you're not the one who's worried about it it's the one who is concerned about getting it wrong that will have the motivation to do the research and again even a couple of simple little details will Uh, create that sense of reality. So you don't have to go whole hog with it, but inevitably there might be something that you do that does not fit everybody else's conception of who that character is. So that if you're playing, uh, HP Lovecraft as a real person in a trail of Cthulhu game, and you say, well, I go up to the bar and order a drink. That is not something that the HP Lovecraft that we uh, know would do so that the GM then has a responsibility to either say, uh, the H.P. Lovecraft we know wouldn't order a drink. Is your H.P. Lovecraft ordering a drink? And uh, is that something you want to explain later? And then that gives the player the option without... Uh, and because it's framed as a choice, rather than an, eh, you got it wrong, then it makes them feel uh, empowered because they can then decide which way they want to go. So the two choices there are, oh, I order a, a, a Shirley Temple, of course. Or uh, you could say, well... Uh, after what he just saw Lovecraft is having his first whiskey and either way you are honoring that detail about that character, but you're not forced into a situation where you've made a mistake or you've uh, got a test answer incorrect.
1: And the GM can also sort of, you know, step away a little bit, fold it in Lovecraft orders a, a drink. And when he gets his drink, the GM says it, you know, tastes like, you know, sour perfume and you're never really sure how your friends can drink so much of this stuff. And you sort of give them a little code, a little cue to get them to say, oh, HBO maybe doesn't like drinks and that he's ordering it for some social reason as opposed to because he wants to drink. Or you give the player a chance to say, it doesn't matter after that Shogath. I pound it just like I've seen uh, James F. Morton do a hundred times or whatever. And I think that that role-playing opportunity sure now canonically your lovecraft is someone who has ordered a drink once or twice but that's not the crucial thing about lovecraft unless you're playing in a game that is literally set, centered around his alcohol use which i think is unlikely
0: right but you might choose to make it a thing right your your lovecraft yeah. might uh, become an alcoholic uh, di- differentiating him quite Markedly from the Lovecraft but from we know in our history.
1: But, but since he's actually fighting vampires or shoggoths or something, instead of sitting at home uh, writing letters to his aunts, uh, he probably is already pretty differentiated in some ways.
0: Exactly so. Uh, so I think we've uh, answered this question and can move on to our next segment.
1: This episode is also brought to
0: you by HoboCon. HoboCon is an independent gaming con. Held in Dublin this June bank holiday. Not any holiday. But a
1: bank holiday.
0: Not any bank holiday. But the June bank holiday. For non-locals who might be in the neighborhood that's May 30th to June 1st. At the Teacher's Club at 36
1: Parnell Square West.
0: Does the venue have its own exceptionally reasonably priced bar?
1: Is this an Irish gaming convention?
0: It was a rhetorical question.
1: So was mine.
0: So pack up your polyhedrals and a shiny new bindle.
1: And meander your way to HoboCon.
0: For a fine and spiritual time amid your fellow hobo gamers.
1: That's HoboCon May 30th to June 1st at the Teacher's Club in Dublin.
0: And that next segment is nerd trope cards in the news this is in a, the news in the news <laughs> um those of you who have listened to some of our live episodes know the nerd trope cards in which uh one genre element is compared uh, randomly to one other slightly less genre element and then can uh, conflates and combobulates them into a coherent uh bit of uh, exposition for your future game? Well, in this case, uh, this is a segment we could have done it in Crime Blotter, we could have done it in Consulting Occultists, but the juxtaposition of elements suggests that we need a new segment called Nerd Trope Cards in the News. So this is a real-life Nerd Trope card draw, uh, and this is from a, a Texas Monthly article by John Nova Lomax, and the headline is a Nigerian... Juju practitioner has been sentenced to actually quite a long sentence in prison (laughs) for being the magical advisor to a pair of Texas-based drug traffickers who are affiliated with a Mexican uh, Gulf cartel. Um, So his name is uh, Christopher Omiji, and uh, he was tutoring them in the way of West African magic and giving them all sorts of different instructions, including they had to scarify themselves and pour uh, powders into the the wounds in order to create a magical barrier against uh, law enforcement, which uh, I I don't think arguably that didn't work.
1: Yeah, no, that is the problem with this law. Stay away. Candle is that it uh, works about as well as something uh, called a law. Stay away. Candle probably does. Um, and also, I think that if we've learned one thing about uh, the feds, it is that they have powerful mojo of their own somehow, uh, because witch doctoring is not a, uh, not a long-term practice. And again, uh, this is not something that is unique necessarily to these guys, because there are narco-traficantes that have been tied in with brujeria or that have been tied in with any number of sort of you know, good luck practices. There's a whole cult of the, the, the sort of the death saint that exists amongst narco traffickers uh who is worshiped in sort of a i don't know creepy version of our lady of guadalupe the, the 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 devouring mother sort of thing where she's got a skeleton for a head and uh shows up on tattoos all the time it's so there's there's sort of a it's not like there's just one witch doctor and everyone else involved in the gulf of mexico drug trade is straight up and down the line you know presbyterian there's a lot of other stuff going on in this area, and this is just one guy who gets charged under what looks like the consigliere law, uh, because witch doctors seldom stick to saying which magical powder you should rub in yourself. They also often have helpful advice about what day you should fly or how to, you know, avoid the cops in a less occult fashion. You know, Merlin wasn't only just telling King Arthur to stay away from, you know, two-headed giants. He was also giving him roundtable advice. Same thing.
0: Right, and that's a big question in this case because uh, of course the defendant is objecting to the term uh, witch doctor, which is a western pejorative term and the feds uh, used it quite a lot in the prosecution. And so the uh, the argument that his the defense lawyer is making is that his involvement in the actual drug trafficking was quite slight and that the uh, sentence is way out of line, because unless you believe that the magic <laughs> had uh, actual efficacious benefits and uh, helped them traffic drugs, which by the fact that they got t- busted, I think we can, well, I mean,
1: they got a, they, they trafficked. they got like a hundred million dollars worth of stuff before they got busted. So it's a question of, you know, the magic worked until it didn't.
0: Right. So are the feds arguing that the magic was effective, or, or, or
1: I, I don't know. I think they're. I think what they're arguing is that he's a consigliere who had a nice line in magical patter. And the defense is trying very cleverly to sort of flip the script and saying you're trying him for being a witch doctor because you keep saying witch doctor. That's stupid. Give our guy a lighter sentence, even though the feds are actually not trying him for that. But since they used the witch doctor to get the 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 big dramatic conviction they are now sort of stuck on that at least rhetorically although one suspects not legally
0: right and they uh his uh patrons whose names were david uh boss bazan and caesar barrera uh sent him to nigeria on numerous occasions in order to uh, stock up on his uh supply of uh uh, magical accoutrements and mana, and reconnect and recharge his batteries as a uh, magician. And mm-hmm. uh, while there, he engaged in uh, some investments uh, and also some philanthropic activities. And I suppose if they want to prove that his hotels in Nigeria or his proposed hotels in Nigeria were a laundering effort, that would be uh, make something more sense. Now, uh, as you suggest, though, this is not the most notorious case of black sorcery and drug trafficking, that would be the case of Aldolfo Costanzo of the um, Matamoros, who was uh, sort of a combination trafficker and cult leader and engaged in actual uh, human sacrifice and killed about 12 people in order to uh, gather what he thought was the magic that would protect him so on uh the scale of uh evil uh narcotraficantes this particular gentleman doesn't quite register
1: no i mean and again a lot of times you know your consiglieres, whether they are this guy you know a major g or or whether they're the lovely and talented uh Murray the hump humphreys the uh welsh Uh, you know, sort of traffic analyst for Capone, they generally don't get themselves involved in the really disgusting stuff, because they're smart enough to know that that's the really heavy capital sentence. Uh, That's why they're a consigliere. This guy, uh, Costanzo, seems to have been more of a messianic cult leader, sort of a Jim Jones type, who was also running a drug cartel, and sort of combined the two of them. Because when you start off with the kind of... High respect for human life that it takes to run a drug cartel in Matamoros and combine it with a messianic, uh, I know what the true gods are saying attitude. You do wind up with a pit full of bodies just like they did, uh, there in the border regions. And again, it's almost certain that this is not the only guy because this is the sort of legend that gets around and becomes part of the, I don't say acceptable, but let's say part of the accepted. Method of practice. And given, you know, that there are probably hundreds of unsolved murders in Juarez going back over the last 20 years, there's all manner of people, you know, beheading each other and using, you know, human skulls as, uh, as calling cards. It would not stun or amaze me that there is yet another, um, uh, brujeria, uh, cult killer who is, um, you know, n- you know, obviously. Brewery is not about mass murder. Brewery is about everything else. Witchcraft is about mostly putting a on someone else's crops and keeping your crops okay. But uh, who has taken Brewery and combined it with uh, mass murder into a a piquant blend. But again, just because it's magical doesn't mean it's not also criminal. That's, you know, it's not an either
0: or. So the next question is how to use these, this idea of the intersection of uh, dark occult forces and drug trafficking in your uh, gaming or fiction. And the most obvious one is to just use it to make the drug traffickers even creepier and more scary and more othered. Uh, And because it's the obvious one, my instinct is just to put a pin in that and then see what else we could do with it. One fun idea, although I think it would have to be kind of for either for fiction or for a one-on-one solo game is the idea that uh, you are a magician who is approached by law enforcement to go undercover because they've just lost their previous uh, practitioner and they want to set you up as a replacement to go in and penetrate the organization as their uh, new conciliary. And uh, this could either be just sort of a straight up uh, crime drama in which the story is agnostic about whether you actually have magical powers or not, or if you do it sort of an unknown armies kind of thing, that could possibly be, I guess, that could be a backstory for a character, right? Is it you're the... A former concil- magical conciliary for a drug trafficking ring and either you were really involved in it and now you've gotten away and you've changed your identity so they don't track you down or you were undercover and now you've been relocated and the next chapter of your adventures begins with the campaign.
1: You were Voodoo Brasco and now yes. you are off in uh, Missoula, Montana trying to fit in and use your voodoo powers mostly for good, mostly for justice. Um, Another thing that you can do with it is you can sort of flip the switch and have the magic actually work, but the magic be something that the traffickers become dependent on, right? That the magic is also a product, and either the consigliere is running the product or the magical talking rocks that this guy had uh, people talking to are running the product, that the dealers are... Uh, Loa or their um uh, Santeros, and the product that they're running is the ability to do things, the ability to feel good about yourself, the ability to get by, and you can still even play with a little bit of how much of this is magic, and how much of this is the spirits messing with your head, and how much of it is really happening. You could maybe do a lot of, you know, back and forth, am I in a drug haze? Am I in a spirit-possessed state? Am I seeing the future? Am I remembering the true past? And play with that a little bit, or you could just do it as a straight-up Um, these guys are addicted to the hoodoo and sooner or later the bill comes due for them, just like it does for everything else. And the player characters, if they're straight up cops, they may be like crazily out of their, uh, depth, true detective style. Or if they are magicians, they are capable of going onto the mean streets of the astral plane and finding out. You know, what has caused the breakdown in divine order that is causing this uh, flood of cheap, uh, cut-up sorcery to hit the streets of uh, mankind, right?
0: Right, and they would not necessarily be able to deal with the mundane firepower that a a modern-day cartel packs. So uh, they might have to uh, forge an alliance with the more uh, practical cop characters, and you could have, you know, your... Buddy cop comedy, or not comedy, and buddy cop <laughs> action, where uh, you know I, I he's a hard boiled cop, I'm a, a magician, and we have to team up in order to to take down this group. Um, or uh, and again, you could uh, furl this into a plot line where you have the idea that the uh, magical essence, the thing that's changing the world, is actually in the drugs themselves, because the you know what do uh, dark spirits and demons uh want uh from the drug traffickers in exchange for their help well there's just all the general horror and chaos and mayhem and fear that they generate which and the uh or you know if they're really old school demons they're just happy to see everybody uh spiraling into uh sin and having their souls claimed or a kind of a newer school demon could be feeding on the mayhem but maybe they're uh trying to do what the uh outer dark entities in uh, the esotericists are doing and break through into uh, our reality. So in that case, they could actually be uh, changing the uh, drugs themselves, so that the people who are uh, uh, taking these drugs are somehow uh, tainted in one way or another, and that may affect their behavior. There might, you know, they might actually be able to synthesize a uh, version of uh, cocaine or heroin that. Uh, leeches your soul from you or turns you into a demon or there's all sorts of ways that you could play with the idea that the drugs themselves now have a um, toxic magical valence to them.
1: Another possibility that occurred to me because this guy's a Nigerian and he's explicitly bringing a different sort of a Nigerian take into this world of uh, Mexo-Caribbean Uh, magic is the notion that you get, you know, in in cities when someone knocks off the current kingpin and then all the new ethnicities come in. So the, you know, Corsicans don't run the heroin into France anymore. It's the Russians. And now the Russians are worried about the Chechens and Albanians coming in and taking their turf away. And maybe what's happening is the Nigerian, uh, Oyo, the Nigerian Obatalas are coming in and knocking off the old Brujas, the old. Uh, Santeros and Eshus that used to have the magical drug trade locked down. And so you've got a sort of a a Scarface story where the, where the, 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 um, you know, the, the Nigerian spirit that's running this guy, Omiji, is actually the Scarface that's coming in and knocking over the old power structure. And all you have to do is just say, okay, if the Voodoo Loa or the Mexican, uh, Santeros are the old Italian mob or the old uh outfit what does this do what What kind of stories can we pull out of the shift in heroin trafficking, or the shift in cocaine trafficking, what's the magical equivalent of crack cocaine? Is it this old-school Nigerian stuff? Is the Nigerian stuff just, you know, cut purer? Or is it just that they can get the source more cheaply because all the massacres in Nigeria by Boko Haram have opened up this huge wellspring of black magic power that the that the uh, bad obatalas
0: can channel? And so that gives you sort of a uh, two-way conflict that's going on between the uh, cartels who use the old school magicians and the uh, ones that use the uh, juju magic, and then you uh, can be, you know, a third force. Uh, and there, uh, you're trying to come in and bust both of them. But which one do you play off against the other? So that uh, when there's a horrible killing, a ritualistic killing, and they, there's a whole bunch of possible suspects, it's not just one, and you have to know what kind of magic was done and track it down to its source, and that makes it even harder and more urgent. To uh, tamp this whole thing down, because there's more and more uh, mayhem and destruction being wrought uh, as there's an all-out magical war at the same time that there's an all-out gang war, and you're like the uh, you know cops uh, during a gang war. That if you're not uh, corrupt yourselves, you're initially going, oh yeah, let those guys bump each other off, but it never becomes a better situation when they right. do that. There's it's always never just that, yeah, because younger even crazier, uh, less heedful uh, criminals come in and, and fill the gap.
1: And of course, if you're playing the feds, you've got to be using Mormon magic, right? <laughs> you're, you you know, you've got your, your, your Nephites and your Levites and your, um, uh, book of book of Mormon, uh, chants and your, your magical, uh, rose colored glasses for seeing footprints and things like that. I mean, this, this, uh, this could go all the way, this could go all the way to the top.
0: Right. Because, uh, J. Edgar was notoriously partial to, uh, uh, good, decent Mormon folk.
1: Because they were incorruptible. They didn't drink, and they didn't uh, smoke, and they didn't fool around. Uh,
0: and so that sort of uh, might indicate why the uh, feds, in this case, uh, made the mistake... Uh, you know, somebody got, went off the reservation and made the mistake of making a big emphasis of the fact that they're charging a, a so-called witch doctor. And so they, uh, there's somebody back at headquarters going, Don't blow the gas, Ugh. Don't blow... And uh, that may uh, indicate that they might... Uh, Uh, be stuck having to uh, let certain people off because they are willing to let the public know what's going on. And you can't have that because that would blow everybody's minds uh, wide open. So part of your, uh, in the esoterios, of course, uh, part of your goal is not just to eliminate the occult threat, but to make sure that the public at large doesn't become any more open than it already is to the possibility that these things uh, really exist.
1: Or you can just have uh, the situation where the uh, feds, uh, you know, screwed up not by, you know, threatening to reveal the existence of magic, because no one's going to ever believe the existence of magic no matter what happens, but where they've screwed up is that they have... Stepped on another federal, uh, operation, right? It's like where the FBI arrests the CIA informant or the CIA, you know, smuggles the uh, FBI's most wanted drug dealer out of the country because he's also running guns to the good rebels, uh, or the less evil rebels. And so, you know maybe this um the 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 juju uh power in nigeria is being needed to fight boko haram right the, the 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 guys who really hate them are fundamentalist muslims and so magic stones are really terrific for going up against medieval screwheads and if the fbi steps on it now the cia has to come in and uh get all tangled up and so you have a situation where everyone has got that perfect magical deal where they've sworn to protect someone that they probably shouldn't have.
0: Right, and the ATF might not know anything's going on. So <laughs> All they, just...
1: they do is just go in and count guns. Yeah,
0: and they foolishly uh, uh, open up forces that should not be tampered with. Uh, well, I think that we've well covered this real-life nerd trope and can move on to our next segment.
1: Blink of glasses meeting in a convivial toast, the thump of a hearty pat on the back, and the silent joy of a project well completed, tell us that we've entered a more philosophical and perhaps more convivial segment, how to create good. And in this section, as you can tell by the exciting idiosyncratic activities, happening there in the opening montage. We're talking about collaboration, working together with another gifted creator. And Robin, obviously, you and I have only the most tenuous of knowledge of how that feels. (laughs) And by tenuous knowledge, I mean we live it every damn day.
0: Yes. Uh, So, uh, one of the things I thought we would do is give some pointers uh, for people who are coming up in gaming or uh, in any other sort of collaborative medium, and more and more creative avenues are becoming collaborative in our uh, new crazy era. And uh, I thought we would share some of the tips and uh, tricks that we've used over the years in order to make sure that collaborations go well. I'm sure that uh, with your long career that just is mine, you've had some very successful collaborations and some less successful collaborations. And over the years, you've learned uh, how to uh, find more of the good situations than the bad ones. And so the first uh bit of advice that I would uh, give is to creatively know when to choose your battles. Is that uh, you want to collaborate with people who are good at what they do and uh, that's a process that you first of all manage over time because if you collaborate with someone... Now it is your
1: turn to fade out midway through.
0: Yeah. and Or also if you have a great collaboration with someone, you're naturally going to want to keep working with them. And if you work with someone who you don't quite click with or don't have the same vision or you don't have the same negotiating style, also, quite naturally, you're not going to wind up probably uh, working for them a lot again. Now, uh, some people uh, certainly do have experiences of having ongoing relationships with clients who are difficult. (laughs) But uh, fortunately, I uh, only have a few examples of that in my long career. And so, uh, so let's assume that because the process of finding good collaborators is A, obvious, find good collaborators, and B, uh, sometimes it's a matter of uh, luck, sometimes it's a matter of good fortune. It's something that you can try to control, but you can't necessarily always control. So, wh- But whether you've got a good, uh, strong collaboration or one that has some friction in it, it still always pays off to know when to choose your battles as a creative person if you have a vision for the project that you're working on it's probably a strong vision and if someone were to come to you and ask about every little thing uh, anything within your realm of expertise you may well have an opinion on but you have to be able to let other people have their heads and do things the way that they want because you're looking for them to bring their own perspective to the project. You're not just looking for someone, a clone of yourself, to do extra work that you don't have time to do. So when something comes up that you would not have done that way, you should always ask yourself, is this actually worth making a thing of? And I think you should think of the interventions that you make into other people's work, the number of times that you ask them to change things, as a... A resource pool there's only so many times you can say uh, no change that three-quarters profile to a head-on shot or no I, I don't like your use of bullet points here or whatever the issue is make sure that you have uh, a good reason for your objection and that sometimes you're willing to let things be somebody else's way
1: yeah, I think that so much of this is just subsumed into the very first part of it, which is pick someone who's really good and, you know, ideally better than you and, uh, you know, collaborate with them. And- you do what they want nine times out of ten or seven times out of ten? Because if you wanted to think about everything and make every decision in the project, that would be a solo project or a project where you're, you know, at most subcontracting with someone who's like, well, I know we can do crossbows, I'm going to have him write the crossbow chapter, but you've really got the whole overall vision. But when you're talking about something like you or I going back and forth on uh, uh, Shadows of Filmland or Gar and I uh, building Dracula Dossier, what really the thing is, is the whole reason that I want to work with Gar or with you is I know that you'll make a decision that is at least as good as the one I was going to come up with, and you're going to make it in your own register. So the part where, you know, it says, you know, don't do that is sort of the beginning part for me is you pick someone that you would never come back at. And every now and again, there may be something where they want to take it in one way and there isn't time or whatever. And one or the, or the two of you is going to be in charge and have to say, No, we can't go off and write up, you know, this whole section of the world. But like you said, you have to recognize that that's not always going to go your way. And the key there, I guess, is to write up a good, compelling vision statement at the beginning of the process so that your collaborator is already buying into the basic direction you want to go. And if they say, I think there should be a lot more, you know, secret radar, or I think that this should be a uh, expressionist nightmare. The other uh, creator says, yeah, that absolutely fits in because they're, you've sort of uh, set them thinking about things that are inside the fence, not outside the fence.
0: Inevitably, though, in a collaboration, even if you do have a really strong original design concept, there are things that you have in your head for the way that you want it to be. And this is assuming that you're the the final voice on the project and we should get to the other situation where you're fulfilling somebody else's uh, vision. But there's inevitably going to be things that you didn't articulate in your vision document or that you only discover to be... Outside your vision when you see somebody going in different direction, and so even in those times, even with a great collaborator, you're going to find things where your intention is not uh, lifted off of the page and and understood or uh, you suddenly discover, oh man we've been doing this particular thing all wrong we have to scrub this and go back there and so uh, that gives you all the more reason not to be uh not to have to have an answer or to make an issue out of every little thing that you really want to make sure whenever you intervene and ask for changes, uh, you know, how much is this going to actually improve the final project versus how long is it going to take for us to uh, wrangle it? And you also have to consider how much your collaborator feels part of the project, right? That you don't want to feel uh, when the shoe is on the other foot and you're dealing with Uh, someone else and you're working to their vision, you um, don't want to get a ton of notes that you feel are are wrong or foolish or unnecessarily meddlesome. And the smart way to deal with that is just to, as much as possible, fulfill all of those instructions. You may pick a few things to challenge the person on, but when the power dynamic is in the other direction, the, the number of things you uh probably ought to challenge if you want to maintain the relationship is even smaller but at the end of the day you may just decide uh as the uh junior creative partner that well we just don't it turns out we don't see it as eye to eye as much as i thought we did and those uh, changes that i was asked to make although i made them and didn't make a fuss over them next time if i have a choice between uh projects the one with this person whose vision is uh not quite in alignment with mine and where I still remember those few changes and, and grit my teeth at them that that's not a situation that you're going to want to uh, go to again and of course part of that if you're a freelancer is sometimes you have the power and choice to choose between clients and uh, sometimes you don't and so you uh have to be tactical uh in uh what relationships you're willing to suspend and what relationships Uh, you see a benefit to blowing up. And my experience is that the number of relationships that are worth blowing up is zero.
1: Yeah. Again, so much of this comes back to sort of, you know, good old golden rule, do unto others, what you dish out on the way up comes back on you on the way down. So try and dish out only cherries and uh, ice cream. The other thing that I think though is, is fun is, I mean, and that maybe is a little more, um, uh, what do I want to say arcane or specialized knowledge is that once you are, you know, once you've gotten through all this sort of 101 level and you can start picking people based on their vision, you can start getting a sense for their vision flair or their vision flavor, and you can start collaborating with people who either are, you know, you only younger, faster, and and in many cases better, like Gar, or they're you only wiser and, uh, will watch out for you on the cliff or they're you, but in a whole other area. And that's the part that I think is, is, is really fun is, you know, when I am working with someone whose, uh, grasp of, uh, rules mechanics design is as good as my grasp of world design, I feel like it's really strong. Or for example, Hal Mangold's ability to lay out a book is, you know, it, it's, it's tremendous. His, his sort of vision of what a product should look like is very similar in terms of, you know, the level of quality to my vision of how a product should play like. And I think that that gives you a a really fruitful collaboration where rather than being really similar, you are working across sort of a gap and just knowing that the other person is parallel to you, but still across a gap and on a different, you know, cliff face.
0: Right. And the other key is to just be very good at communicating with people and to be sort of a fun and friendly presence in uh, email or on Skype or whatever it is that uh, you uh, communicate with. And that can be challenging uh, because, uh, first of all, as a creative person, it's also important that you stick to your vision, that you have a really strong idea of what you want to do and that you believe that you are right to have that vision in the face of all the criticism that you may face further on down the line from people who see what it is that you've done and wish that you'd done something else. Mm -hmm. And that if you, uh, one of the, uh, difficult collaborations I was involved with for a while, I kind of, uh, because the, uh, client's vision was very, very different than mine. And I was trying to, uh, understand and, and reproduce it, but still, uh, have something that where there was a measurable impact of my having been involved with it, uh, that I, uh, eventually sort of lost my sense of what was good and bad about my own writing and that can be very dangerous But mm-hmm. if you're trying too hard to match a vision that isn't yours or to create something that you wouldn't enjoy at the end of the day that's the time when you have to dig in your heels as a creator and say and either walk away from the project or move move in another direction because uh, that can be very very damaging so the other side of that is you don't want to completely surrender your idea of uh, what is right and what is entertaining and spend a lot of your life working on something that doesn't engage you because once you're working on something that actually is outside your own tastes you have no way to evaluate whether it's good or bad right and uh that can be uh very emotionally challenging so even though at one on one side of the aisle i'm saying that in an ideal situation you are going to uh, be open to what other people are doing and to want to fulfill the brief that you are given by your client and to understand that brief and give them what they want. There's also the danger that you are going to give in too much and lose your perspective of the value of your own work. And so even in a positive collaboration, though, that sense of uh, sort of a uh, stubborn foolishness that leads one into a creative career uh, because because it has many challenges uh, and isn't necessarily uh, lucrative or stable or any of those things. Uh, It's something you need to hold on to, but you also need to be able to channel. But if you're someone who can uh, either be friendly and congenial and open to other people's collaborations or role play that person when make, writing emails, you're going to do much better than if you think of a collaboration as a, a system of trench warfare where you're trying to preserve as much of, as possible the way that you want to do it and resist the uh, encroachments of other people on the project.
1: Yeah, I think that that balance – I mean, because that's like you're talking about an internal balance in yourself. You've got to balance that. You've got to balance the workload and the uh, creative load of your other partner. Collaboration is it. – it is about balance. And if you are the kind of person who you know you're not going to be able to cre- create balance in life, that you work best by toppling yourself forward and falling downhill into genius – you're not going to be a really good collaborator with someone because your process isn't accessible. No one can, you know, help fall and no one can be standing at the bottom of the hill waiting to catch you. At the, at best, they can be, you know, creating exciting rocks or trees for you to fall past maybe or, um, uh, or something like that. So I think if you look into your, yeah, this sounds sappy, but if you look into yourself, if you look into your process and you say, I do not produce in a way that is open to those collegial moments or those give and take moments or those back off or those, um, uh, no seriously, listen to me moments, or you don't operate with a, a pre plan strong enough to constrain, uh, strong creative visions, or at least direct strong creative visions. Then the way you collaborate good is don't collaborate or collaborate as part of a very discrete part of a project that can be calved off and and run on its own process.
0: And you have to have a certain level of fatalism about if you're contributing to an existing property where you are not the creator of that property or you're not the uh, developer who's the gaming equivalent of the showrunner, that there are cool ideas that you might have about the world of darkness or Glorantha or uh, Shadowrun that uh, might not make it through, and so again, it can't be. Uh, you want to make sure you avoid the pitfall of emotionally attaching yourself to particular angles and elements, making it through in becoming canon. And so, the the one that I'm closest to of those is Glorantha, and that's Greg Stafford's world. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Jeff Richard at Moon Design is now the major domo of uh, deciding uh, what it is in isn't continuity because uh, Greg is uh, uh, retired largely from from that effort and you can't, uh, when you're writing something think, well, I'm going to define <clears throat> how successful I am by how many new creations of my own that become official Gloranthin canon. You've just got to do your best, do things that you think fit the spirit of the game and then whoever it is who's the arbiter of what finally makes it in and becomes canon that's you know that might be a a cool little thing to say oh well this god i kind of invented uh greg changed it a bunch but it's still part of the canon that's fun that's something that pleases my uh earlier self who uh enjoyed glarentha just as a fan but that the uh object is to create something that's part of a whole And to be part of the process that leads to something good and interesting, you're not trying to score a particular number of city names or gods or whatever it is. You're not trying to scent mark somebody else's property. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, we worked on Star Trek, uh, man and boy, for uh, six years, something like that. And uh, we got, I think, one word of Klingon. And the fact that uh, Andor is an ice planet onto the screen and that was all of us. And I don't think, I think maybe, maybe Gareth Skarka actually wrote the Klingon word. And I forget if I came up with Andor being an ice planet or someone else did. I, I've developed a book that we talked about it a lot in. But you know the the dueling uh, knife. I'm the, the impression knife,
0: that there was more stuff in Enterprise about the Andorians yeah, that came from the yeah the, the, that the, the dueling knife and all the other
1: stuff. So a lot of what uh, S. John Ross and Steve Long did wound up in. But I'm if I'm talking about my personal contribution, right. it was to hire and collaborate with S. John and Steve and to say you know it'd be awesome if Andoria was an ice planet. And I'm not even sure that was mine. That might have been you know Pete Schweigert or someone way back in the early days.
0: Right, and and that is crazy unprecedented. I I don't think there's another... Is there another example of something making it from uh, role-playing material into the uh, core canon of a property? Uh,
1: Into the core canon of Star Trek, no, because they had very strong gatekeeping. It used to be that everything from the role-playing world was in the core canon of Star Wars, and then they uncanonified it again. But I am not Star Wars nerd enough on either side of the spectrum to know how much stuff got invented in WEG and wound up in the Clone Wars cartoon or somewhere Um, and I wouldn't even know if it had wound up you know, uh, Easter egged in a movie because that would involve a lot of watching of those movies over again
0: but it's cool, the point is it's cool when it happens, it's a cherry on the sundae but it can't be your objective the objective has to be to making the project at hand cool
1: create a good product in the time, in the moment
0: yeah um, so is there, are there any major elements of collaboration that we've, uh, uh, failed to handle? Oh, I guess the other one is to make sure that when you are, uh, asking people for changes, that, uh, you are not only, uh, friendly in the way that you do it and that you are, um, not just saying change this, but saying, I would like you to change this in this direction, right? Yes. Be specific about what you want. The, the worst possible thing that you can do as a creative lead on a project is to say, well, I don't know what I'm looking for, but I know this isn't it. Um, if you really want to burn out your collaborators, try that nonsense. Yeah.
1: Or try it and then be mad at what they come back with. I mean, you can try it if, again, you're working, and I w- don't want to keep you know saying Gareth Hanrahan over and over again, but he's really good. And um, so I got to the point that I can now say, Gareth, Gareth, write what I would write if I had time to write this, and Gareth will come back, and by God, he'll write what I had, what I would have written if I'd had the time to write this often with one or two things I wouldn't even thought to research, but if I had, that's what I would have written. So it's kind of a, you know, that's a nice uh, simpatico if you can get it, but I think that that's something that's organic. It's not something that you can create. I mean, I, I didn't have to put Gareth in a room containing nothing but copies of Gurp's Cabal until he promised to come out and research vampires for me. We just sort of fell into this into, the, into this uh, relationship as we worked on
0: Dracula. Right. But if you do have a note, make sure that note points the person in the direction of what it is that you'd Absolutely. like to do. yeah. Ideally, you want them to come up with an even better solution than you came up with, but... If you're just saying, oh, I don't know about this, or if you're not clear about what the problem, you know, or just sort of clearly state the problem. Yeah. Say, well, you know, the problem here is that this adventure is going to be too long, and it's supposed to be four hours, and uh, so I need you to cut something out of it. Or the problem so- is it's
1: about the orcs, and that's Steve's section. You can't do orcs. Do something else.
0: Right. So w- whatever it is, or, you know, the uh, the suggestion here that the, uh you know, the netherworld works this way is mistaken so uh or not what we want to present early on so uh here's a way to, ch- to fix it that will conform to what it is that we're doing and uh even better if you can find out the uh, simplest most minimal uh effort-free change that will result in what you want uh the better so that uh because as uh when i'm doing revisions i'm not necessarily always thinking i want to have maximum creative control and choice at every point in the project I'm doing for someone else. Often it's the simplest solution is best. And so if you give me a sentence that you would rather have uh, than the sentence I've got, I'm not precious about that. I'm going to cut and paste it and put it in there because A, I know you like it. And B, it gives me more time to move on to the other things that you're doing.
1: And on the other side as creative lead, um, that's what you want is you want to be able to Turn to someone, have them fix it, and go on. You don't want to keep relitigating something one way or the other, because the whole reason you had a collaborator is to save time and produce the product faster. Not necessarily just because you've had a lifelong dream of of you know dancing backward in heels with uh, Jonathan Tweed or somebody. Although that would be great. A lot of times it's it's a pragmatic question. The reason you're collaborating is to work in parallel, not uh, back and forth over each other's tracks.
0: Right. And it can be really easy to get lost. And if you do have a big sort of philosophical difference, you can, you have to also have, when you're evaluating whether it's worth intervening in something or changing it, you need to ask yourself, how much is this actually going to affect anyone playing the game? Mm -hmm. Uh, and if you're getting really hung up on something that is actually some sort of crazy minor bugaboo, just let it go because, uh, everybody has their own bugaboos that they're going to bring up and the chances of the, anyone, any single person in the audience being concerned about the thing that's driving you crazy, unless it's a really obvious problem that everybody uh, is going to concede needs fixing is very minimal. So either fix it yourself in the development project process or ask your collaborator to fix it and move on because uh, what we're doing is always time sensitive because there has to be a relationship between the, amount of time you spend on something and the uh, return uh, you get uh, that then allows you to go on and do the next thing.
1: And speaking of going on and doing the next thing, Robin, why don't you collaborate with me in ushering our audience into the next hut?
0: The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once again standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. That is, the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to propel him back into history, which he will then proceed to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate. And in this case, uh, this is an instance where a reader is asking why Ken did something that is already part of our time stream. So you're going to be explaining... A uh, not an alternate timeline that you're going to create, but the current timeline that you helped bring into effect. And Christoph Sapinski, who I still sorely miss as a local playtester, he's moved back to his Locust Monday in Vancouver, asks uh, you to tell us about your successful time mission to 1241 to kill Odegai Khan with booze. So, Odegai Khan is the third son and eventual successor of Genghis Khan. He became the uh, Kagan of the mongol uh, empire in 1227 and as mongols go he was uh kind of a uh, charming charismatic even kind of a, a thoughtful uh mongol horde leader so ken uh why is it that you decided you had to do something about the odegai khan
1: uh the reason i had to do something about ogadai khan is because he was so good at letting really competent people do really competent things that is, really competent generals, we're going to tear Europe up by the roots and burn it in a pyre of skulls. And as a guy who values a lot of things that come out of post 1241 Europe, like democracy and about half the cathedrals and uh, <laughs> Shakespeare, me, my genome. I, uh, I want to keep Ogadai Khan on his side of the Volga. And I want to keep the Mongol empire, uh, consumed with, uh, fighting other people than, uh, my cultural and in many cases, blood ancestors. So I wanted to preserve Europe. And the way to do that was to cause Ogadai's death. This is because, uh, when a Mongol Khan died, All of the big generals, instead of staying out in the field saying, nope, nope, still fighting for the Khan, don't mind us, just got a big old army that you can't control, are supposed to head back to Khan Central, in this case, Karakorum, and get in on the big discussion vote session in which we decide who's going to be the next Khan because the other way leads to civil war. Well, of course, this way also leads to civil war, but, you know, they tried, God bless them, they tried to think of a better way. So Batu and Subadai, who were the two generals who were uh, between them, just going through Europe like the Green Bay Packers through um, uh, everyone, had to turn around, had to uh, up stakes, and head back to uh, Mongolia for the big vote.
0: And where were they at when the uh, when the word came down? They
1: were uh, at that moment sitting about twenty miles or less outside Vienna, in the one case, and right about on. The uh, Elbe River getting ready to punch into Germany and seeing if all of those stone buildings held any shiny treasure or just burned nice. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) They they had just destroyed the Polish uh, knights. The Poles were all gone. Poland was going to be a Mongol, uh, was going to be a Mongol federate. Uh, and they just blown out the flower of North German chivalry at Legnitz, uh, and that is just a little bit south. It's not as close to Berlin as the other armies were to Vienna, but it's not far from Berlin, given that Mongols could ride 50 miles in a day. And Germany's, you know, it's, it's big for medieval Europe, but it's not Mongol big. So they were they were in the position to probably at least have gotten to the Rhine by the end of that campaigning year, and then to the Atlantic by the year after that. Uh, they would have maybe been stopped by the English Channel, just like they were stopped by the uh, Japanese uh, Tsushima Straits uh, on the other side of the uh, continent, but maybe not. I mean, maybe Shakespeare and Jane Austen are also uh, gone with the rest of European civilization.
0: So is there a particular reason why, uh, you know, there are different points in his career where you can choose to go and uh, induce him to alcohol poisoning. Uh, Why do you pick this moment in history to do it?
1: Well, this moment in history is sort of the last moment before Europe goes under, right? They're, you know, sort of bobbing up for the third time at this point. Um, But the other thing is that the thing that the Mongols do in addition to build enormous pyramids of skulls and level cities is they create a gigantic trade network. They create a huge economic boom... Uh, after, of course, causing a huge population bust, just like the Black Death also created a huge economic boom, but in this case, combined with a really powerful trade federation. And so the diffusion of paper, gunpowder, the compass, uh, any number of other inventions, those being probably the three big ones, uh, but uh, probably hundreds of inventions from China into Europe, uh, kickstarts the high Middle Ages, the creation of this Immense, um, uh, uh, sort of, uh, continent spanning Khanate Con does, uh, gangbusters business for Buddhism as it happens. There's a lot of other stuff that happens, uh, in, in terms of salutary effects for uh, a lot of other trading populations. The Armenians, uh, wind up making a real packet out of this. Uh, Venice and this, and the Italian city states, which of course means you get a Renaissance, which of course means you get. All manner of other great stuff um uh are because they're rich guys at one end of this giant Mongol trade route that they've just built. It's like being the guys who had the uh air the airline licenses when uh Eisenhower was setting up all those airfields it it's It's that kind of a of a make or break moment and similarly, I expect uh that this is another one of the reasons that China is one country instead of three or four is that the Mongols set themselves up to be in a position although that was under Kublai, not under to re-reunify China and once more uh, establish the notion that it's one country, not a bunch of countries.
0: So basically, the the, uh, the Mongols had some good ideas, and you want to preserve those. Mm-hmm. So uh, They were religiously
1: going... tolerant, which is very nice of them.
0: Yes. Um, so uh, you are going to have to infiltrate the Kagan's court. Uh, so, how do you? Uh, who do you pose as? And what? Uh, how do you need? To, what do you need to do to successfully impersonate your way into uh, his Kaganite presence?
1: Well, you um, you get a lot of people who have dug up various pieces of evidence, uh, and I am not biological uh, historian or hereditologist or whatever they call it, genetic historian enough to know this one way or the other. But people will say Genghis Khan was redheaded and he had green eyes. And the such and such number of the Mongols look basically like Irishmen. And this may or may not be true. There was certainly a gigantic, uh, redheaded, green-eyed, long skulled population that lived right there in Central Asia about a thousand years before the Mongols, and the question is how many of them died how utterly uh between then and twelve oh nine when Genghis united everybody into one big happy empire. Obviously, they're drawn as uh, Mongolian guys or Chinese guys, but that's because virtually all of the artists were Mongolian guys or Chinese guys. And if you look at the way the Europeans drew, you know, guys from uh – uh you know, Prester John or somebody, they drew them as Europeans. They drew Alexander the Great as a tall, skinny blonde, not a short, um, uh, dimply uh, uh, honey blonde.
0: So you're saying you already look kind of Mongolian.
1: I might. And even if I don't, I can go in as a Western scholar because those guys were going along this giant open trade route and saying, hey, have you heard the good news of Christ? And is there a compass around here I can borrow? Uh, And that's... That's another thing that was very much acceptable. Once your country had sort of, you know, knocked head on the ground, or you were not from the guys they were fighting yet, they were happy to bring your ambassadors to Karakorum, quiz you about what's going on in the world, and uh, put you on the big list of to-be-conquered more nicely than the next guys, if you uh, played your cards right. So there's plenty of ways to get into Karakorum. Getting into the actual Khanate, I think, requires things like knowledge of this awesome continent full of gold just across the ocean, once you get, you know, all of Siberia taken over, or all of Britain, I can, you know, help you out with some of that.
0: So, uh, you show up, and you start proposing that you will uh, be their tour guides to conquer, uh, Britain,
1: basically. Yeah, or America, or whatever. Or America.
0: Um, and so, uh, you win entrance to the, uh, to the inner court. How, how trusting are they? How, uh, how much are you going to have to, uh, uh Prove yourself to them before you get ushered into the uh royal presence,
1: well Ogata, like they said is a is a pretty you know straightforward take him as they come guy. He has the sort of confidence that you get from say a George Clooney if George Clooney could have anyone in the world executed it's that kind of uh level of alpha dog attitude he doesn't need to be a bigger man and 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 prove it. Uh, there are a number of uh, very ambitious advisors around him. He has a Chinese advisor whose advice is, please don't kill everyone in China. Um, he has a wife who, of course, wants her kid to inherit, not the guy that Bogotai wants to inherit, which is what causes the previously foreshadowed civil war upon his death. Um, so like every great kingdom, there's going to be layers and layers of ambitious courtiers, but... If you look, you know, down the line at Marco Polo, for example, he makes it into what are at least, you know, routine access to Kublai Khan. He's not buddying around with them, Robin to his Batman, but he's certainly, you know, welcome to come in and and share interesting stories about the hilariously primitive lands to the
0: West. And so uh, you find yourself in his uh, presence. Is there any things you particularly want to avoid in order to make sure he doesn't behead you before you have your uh, uh, moment of drinking?
1: Um, I think you avoid making jokes about lightning. Uh, Mongols don't like it. Uh, they don't like Les Majesty against Tengri, the god of heaven. Uh, I think you probably also avoid getting into religious fights because that's another thing they don't like. And if you bring something good to drink, Ogadai will forgive pretty much any of your other personal flaws because he, unlike many of my historical interlocutors, was a drinking man. He drank a lot. Um, he used to have a, uh, a policy by which he, uh, would drink only 10 cups in a given evening or, or some number like that. And his, uh, brother Jagatai, his older brother Jagatai, uh, had a guy at court whose job was to count the cups. And Ogadai knew that if he drank more cups than he was allowed, that guy would tell Jagatai and Jagatai would yell at him. So he just started drinking out of larger and larger cups. <laughs> So seems this like an is obvious already loophole, a guy of it. that I am completely going to get in, get along with.
0: So you you bring him some oversized drinking cups and, and you bring and, him and some a delicious,
1: delicious vodka from a from a land far across the sea.
0: Um and is is vodka what you uh what you choose is the unfamiliar drink that you, he will undoubtedly wish to introduce him to?
1: Well, I think that you you want to introduce him probably, you know, like with anything you you start off with your long island iced teas and your uh, amaretto sours and whatnot, and then you build him up into the direction of, of uh, grain spirits because he's used to drinking wine and he's just used to drinking kumis, which is fermented mare's milk, which I am not looking forward to that shot uh, <laughs> at all. Um, and, but again, distilled spirits, they just have a higher proof. And obviously, if you've ever gone on a beer drinking binge fest or even a wine drinking binge fest, you know that you've been in a fight. But it's nothing compared to drinking something that's 100 proof uh rather than something that's 20 proof and it is so full of fruit sugars or basic carbohydrates that your, your body just is uh, too full to digest the the alcohol, even the alcohol that's in there. Um, but, yeah, you start mainlining vodka and that's where my competitive advantage has to lie because that's what I've been drinking and this is a new experience for Ogatai and that is why he starts drinking out on the hunt. And, um, uh, gives himself, you know, exposure and winds up sort of falling off his horse and sitting down in the tundra thinking about his life for a while. That's a classic vodka bender if I ever heard of one.
0: So do you, uh, stick around to witness the, uh, the, the fireworks and in the incipient civil war become less incipient or do you, uh, van Moose out of there as soon as he, uh, starts lying down in his uh, on the tundra uh, <laughs> after
1: Ogatai has his second little lie down after drinking the drink provided by the red headed barbarian from either the far east or the far west. get your story straight dude i 'm um, uh, pretty sure that uh, yellow chuotsai, who is the uh, Chinese advisor tasked with not letting him drink so much, and uh, Turkina, the favorite wife who probably also has her issues if the uh, if the kagan can 't um, uh, can't conquer where he needs to be conquering uh i think they are both going to be really looking for me so december twelfth, twelve forty-one. i am out of there with all the yak furs and uh uh, griffin diamonds i can carry
0: so uh i think you've you've answered my habitual final question which is what souvenirs do you take so uh is there anything else that you uh uh, wrote up in your after action reports of course this is something that you've already done uh is there any other telling detail that you told time incorporated that you'd like to tell our listeners
1: um, I told uh, Time Incorporated, the thing that I did do was I brought back uh, Batu and Ogadai's orders of battle so that we could prove all those uh, chauvinistic European historians wrong when they said that they were not either defeated and they were not either defeated by a Mongol horde that was just a scouting raid and it didn't do any damage either and we totally could have taken them. It, they sound like Bears fans, frankly, to me, and I, I won't have it. So I'm going to bring back a couple of notarized... Uh, Tables organization. And I kind of the the official history of the Mongols is called the secret history of the Mongols. I'd kind of like to bring back the more secret history or the less secret history. We're we're sort of in between stools on Mongol history. And I think people need to know more about these guys, because admittedly, the pyramid of skulls is kind of hard to get past. But they had a lot of stuff right as well as a lot of stuff wrong.
0: Uh, well, at, at that, we will uh, drink some celebratory kumis and declare another podcast conquered.
1: Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors:
0: Atlas Games,
1: Hobocon,
0: Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrim Press.
1: Music, as always, is by James Semple.
0: Collaborate with us in the most important way possible financially by hitting the donate button at ken and robin talk about
1: build awareness of your game kickstarter book or chuvgan mallet by advertising with us grab the rate sheet at our site
0: on twitter he's at kenneth height and he's at robin d laws see you next time when once again we will talk about stuff